Hello, and welcome to the VJ Oncology Podcasts, where we bring you the latest clinical news and scientific developments in the oncology space. In this session, we'll be hearing three speakers from the ASCO 2021 meeting give us updates on key clinical trials investigating the latest treatment regimens for urothelial carcinoma. To start off, we'll be hearing Petrus Krebus from the University of Washington School of Medicine in Seattle give us an update on the Phase 3 Javelin Bladder 100 trial that investigated treatment with Avelumab alongside best support care in patients with locally advanced or metastatic urothelial carcinoma. We're very excited to have attended the ASCO 2021 virtual meeting, and we have the opportunity to present new data, especially from the Javelin Bladder 100 trial. As you may know, Javelin Bladder 100 trial changed the standard of care in 2020 with uh, overall survival benefit demonstrated by the checkpoint inhibitor Avelumab as switch maintenance therapy in patients who had achieved response or stable disease to platinum-based chemotherapy and now is a recommended uh, treatment with level one evidence based on multiple guidelines and approved in multiple countries. And uh, the study was published at the New England Journal of Medicine as of September 2020, and uh, Professor Pauls had presented the data at the plenary session of ASCO 2020 last year. Again, this is available maintenance after a response or stable disease to induction of platinum-based chemotherapy. In our efforts to update the data set, we had three particular uh, posters uh, that were presented at the ASCO 2021 meeting. And the first one was presented by Professor Pauls uh, and looked at different clinical and genomic molecular subsets of patients. Uh, for example, we look at patients with uh, uh, locally advanced and resectable disease versus metastatic distant disease or uh, upper versus lower tract of the primary tumor uh, and also different molecular subsets based on gene expression, RNA expression profiling. Uh, the take-home message was that uh, as of now, there is no clinical or molecular factor to help us select which patients get Avelumab maintenance. I think every patient who has no contraindication to uh, uh, immunotherapy should be offered Avelumab as switch maintenance therapy. There were some differences in the degrees of and magnitudes of benefit across different clinical molecular subgroups, but overall Avelumab benefits patients across the board, uh, um, across different, different clinical molecular subgroups, uh, and we're doing more work, we have some hypothesis generating data, especially with the luminal subtype, and we're looking to this further. However, the sample size of particular subsets, especially the luminal subset, uh, was very small. So overall, I think uh, the practice implications remain that Avelumab should be offered uh, regardless of any particular molecular biomarker and regardless uh, if the patient got a response or stable disease, as long as there was no progression to induction-based chemotherapy. We also looked at two separate questions. Uh, the, uh, one of them was, 
we would like to see whether available maintenance therapy has any impact on the benefit of subsequent therapies. Uh, in the Javelin Bell 100 trial, about two thirds of the patients in the best supportive care uh, and uh, uh, also patients in the available arm, some of them uh, received second line therapy. And the question was, is there any impact on this PFS2, uh, the progressive survival on the second line therapy? We did not have the granularity of the data to measure PFS2 uh, specific for the second line therapy. So we looked uh, from the time of randomization in the trial until the end of next line of therapy. So the entire time period from trial randomization until the completion of the next line of therapy. And we saw that there was a significant increase prolongation in this time from randomization to the end of next line therapy with Avelumab maintenance, just corroborating the uh, overall benefit with CC with this maintenance strategy in this disease. The caveat, of course, uh, was that we did not have specific granular information on the second line therapy PFS. But again, this was an approximate estimate of this uh, question. Uh, overall, the data further support uh, the switch maintenance available strategy in those with response to stable disease chemotherapy. The third question was uh, whether there is any impact on the treatment-free interval between the completion of induction platinum-based chemotherapy and the initiation of Avelumab and whether uh, this time window that was between four and 10 weeks in the clinical trial had any impact in how patients benefit from Avelumab. And the answer was that the benefit with Avelumab maintenance um, was across the board, uh, regardless of the time uh, between the end of chemotherapy and the initiation of Avelumab, this treatment-free interval. Uh, however, uh, in my practice, I discuss with my patients uh, and uh, I mention my concern about potential of progression that might happen, especially if we wait longer. So I, I discuss with the patients and unless there is any particular family or social reason, uh, we uh, tend to prefer to start switch maintenance available sooner than later, earlier than later, just to avoid any potential internal progression, considering the short progression for survival in, in those uh, patients. Uh, but in this particular abstract, uh, the benefit with available uh, uh, was um, notable uh, in, in, in the spectrum, uh, regardless of the treatment free interval, as I mentioned before. And then it, of course, it depends on the individual patient when they will start, uh, but personally, I prefer to start sooner than later. Overall, we're very excited about the Javelin Bladder 100 program. We have a lot of work still being done with biomarket, transitional study, quality of life data, and uh, hopefully will continue to inform the, the um, landscape and the uh, community about the findings. And I would like to thank uh, so much the audience for the attention and uh, everybody stay safe. Next up, Terence Friedlander from the UCSF Helen Diller Family Comprehensive Cancer Center in San Francisco will talk about an ongoing multi-cohort phase 1b2 trial, EV103. This study is investigating the treatment of advanced or metastatic urothelial carcinoma using enfortumab vedotin on its own or in combination with other therapies like pembrolizumab. The EV103 study, I think, is a pretty exciting study, and I'm really honored to be um, uh, able to present the data at um, the ASCO annual meeting this year. Um, so it's a, um, a multi-arm study um, that is looking at the combination of enfortumab vedotin. This is an antibody drug conjugate um, directed against Nectin-4. The, the drug itself is MMAE, monomethyl or statin E, which is a type of chemotherapy. 
Um, <clears throat> and uh, it's um, being given to patients with urothelial cancer, or really metastatic, conventionally called bladder cancer. Um, so, so um, informapidotin has actually been developed as a, as a monotherapy by itself in a number of different trials. Um, the most uh, recent phase three trial actually just reported the EV301 study, which showed that um, as a single agent in patients who've already had chemotherapy and have already had immune therapy, that informapidotin by itself actually has a fair amount of activity with almost about a 50% response rate in a very kind of heavily pretreated patient population. Um, and so that's exciting data because it's now FDA approved um, in the United States, I think since 2019, um, to, to treat um, very advanced metastatic urothelial cancer. Because the drug is so active at, by itself, um, investigators, my colleagues and I, um, talked with uh, the company that makes this, Seattle Genetics, now called CGen, about doing a study where um, we combine infortimabidotin with other therapies that are either all are already approved or in development for urothelial cancer. Um, and the most, I think, um, interesting one of those, at least in my, on my take, was to combine it with immune therapy, PD-1 immune therapy, specifically a drug called pembrolizumab. Um, and so the study started out with a dose escalation where we're combining infortimabidotin and pembrolizumab together, and then into a dose expansion cohort to see you know, what the activity was. And instead of giving it late in the course of therapy, after you know, uh, uh, cancers become resistant to chemo or the cancers become resistant to immune therapy, this study is looking in treatment-naive patients, so patients who've never had um, systemic therapy for metastatic urothelial cancer, and specifically in a patient population that is not eligible for cisplatin-based chemotherapy. Cisplatin is the sort of standard of care chemotherapy as of now, as of 2021. When patients are ineligible for cisplatin chemotherapy, often they're offered carboplatin chemotherapy, but the outcomes are, are not as good for those patients. Um, so so the, the study really focuses on this um, metastatic cisplatin ineligible urothelial cancer population and is investigating this combination of both infortimab, vidotin, and other partners. In the poster we're presenting now at ASCO, we're presenting the um, uh, what's called cohort A, which was the first cohort, which looks at the um, uh, in combination of EV and pembrolizumab together, both with the uh, five patients who are included in the dose escalation, and then the 40 patients who are included in dose expansion. And we have just about two years of follow-up, in fact, a little over two years of follow-up for all these patients as a median follow-up. Um, and so uh, some of this data has been presented before um, in at uh, ESMO meeting and at previous ASCO meetings, but this uh, sort of um, is the longest term follow-up we have to date for this study. So the study itself, as I mentioned, um, is looking at the first 45 patients included in the trial. Um, when we look at the baseline characteristics, it's pretty representative of um, a metastatic urothelial cisplatin ineligible population. About 80% of the patients who uh, enrolled were men. The average age was just under 70 years old. Most of the patients were ECOG 0 or 1, the, uh, over 80% of the patients. The majority had uh, cancer of the bladder as opposed to the upper tracts, although we did have 33% of patients had disease in the ureters and the renal pelvis. Um, most patients had visceral metastatic disease. 84% of the patients had disease in, in an organ. And uh, of them, 31% or 31% of all the patients had liver metastatic disease. And that's important because patients who have cancer 
metastatic to the liver have a much worse prognosis. Um, so especially cisplatin ineligible patients with metastatic disease in the liver have a, a really, um, fortunately, poor outcomes compared to other patients. Um, there was a fair splay of um, whether patients were PDL1 positive or negative, or whether just we didn't have the data on that. It was just about even between those three groups. Um, perhaps the most exciting data was looking at the response rates. So what we saw were that 93% of patients had some shrinkage of tumors um, from their initial scans, from their baseline scans. Um, of them, or actually they have the total, 73% had confirmed responses by RESIST criteria. Um, and just to put that in context, the most recent phase three trials um, that reported in this basically similar patient population, this is the Keno 361 study and the Invigor 130 study, the overall response rates to, um, to chemotherapy plus PD-1 therapy in those trials were on the order of 40 to 50%. I think the highest response rate was 54% in the, in the keynote study. Um, this is 73%, so that's significantly higher. And while it's a, a smaller study, you know, it's only 45 patients, it's not hundreds of patients, um, it's still quite encouraging and quite exciting to see the, the majority of patients, and almost the vast majority of patients having some response to this um, regimen. I think the other important piece here is that it's a regimen that doesn't include traditional chemotherapy, right? There's no platinum involved here. Um, and while platinum has activity and, you know, can be effective against erythelial cancer, it also carries a lot of side effects, you know, toxicity, neuropathy, myelosuppression, and risks for um, organ damage to the kidneys uh, uh, and nerves. And um, so, you know, avoiding platinum is, is actually, I think, a, a fairly worthy goal for, for a lot of these patients. Looking at the responses, the responses actually happened um, in patients who were pd one positive as well as pd one negative. And I think that's quite important as well. It implies that you don't need to screen people for pd one status in order to give them this combination, assuming this, this data holds up in, in larger studies. Um, and they didn't actually screen patients for Nectin-4, which is the target of infortimab. Um, and that's because earlier studies have shown that, you know, 80 to 90% of your epithelial cancers have high levels of Nectin-4 expression. And, you know, we didn't want to exclude people um, based on, you know, the fact that most patients were going to be positive regardless. Um, when patients responded, they responded early. So the average time, the median time to the first response was only two months. So you can give this therapy and see, at least in the study, when we gave the therapy, we saw that people were responding fairly quickly. That's somewhat reassuring that we don't have to wait a long time to see responses. And then when we look at the longer term outcomes, once a patient's responding, the median duration of response was 25 months. So that's over two years of responding. And, and that's like basically unprecedented for urothelial cancer to see patients start responding and then continue to respond for two years. To really put this in context, if you jump back 10 years ago, there was a phase three trial of uh, carboplatin and gemcitabine. And the overall uh, survival in that study, the median time that patients lived was only nine months. And here we have a study that's showing just remarkably um, 
want better outcomes. The overall survival in this study at, uh, with, with the median follow-up of, of uh, just over two years is 26 months. You compare that back to nine months, which is what we had about 10 years ago. So, you know, this is really, again, it's a phase two study. So it's, you know, I don't want to overemphasize the data, but this is pretty exciting. And when we do phase one, phase two trials, this is really the, um, the um, what we're looking for is a signal. And I think this is a fairly robust signal. Finally, Jonathan Rosenberg from the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York will be talking us through the Fort 2 trial which studied the safety and efficacy of the rogaratinib plus atezolizumab treatment regimen in patients with untreated FGFR-positive urothelial carcinoma. Fort 2 is a, uh, was a phase 1b2 study looking at um, atezolizumab and rogaratinib. Uh, atezolizumab is a pdl one inhibitor, rogaratinib um, is an FGFR uh, inhibitor. And the study design was somewhat unique in that rather than selecting patients based on the mutation status, it was, uh, it was conducted based on overexpression of FGFR3 as an entry criteria, as determined by mRNA expression using a, a technique called RNA scope. And so patients who entered the study had overexpression um, of FGFR3 or, um, or I believe two as well, but mostly FGFR3. Um, and these patients uh, all received tezolizumab and rogaratinib initially in a dose escalation, which identified 600 milligrams of rogaratinib twice a day as the recommended phase two dose for the tezolizumab, and then a phase two cohort. And the response rate, I'm sorry, expansion cohort, and the response rate was um, 58%, um, which in a PDL1 low FGFR3 positive cohort seems better than we might expect. Um, again, a small trial um, with uh, all the caveats that go with that, not randomized, uh, but certainly compares favorably to historical data with atezolizumab alone in that setting where you might expect the responses in the 20s. Um, we don't have solid data on rogaratinib by itself in that setting, but my expectation is it's probably not got a response rate of 58% on its own based on other data with rogaratinib that was seen in the past. And so uh, where this where rogaratinib is going in, in bladder cancer development is unclear, uh, but hopefully uh, this will get picked up into a larger study to allow us to further explore whether this is in fact um, a, a viable pathway forward. We do see, you know, typical toxicities of both drugs um, with rogaratinib causing, um, you know, skin toxicity and hyperphosphatemia um, and some gastrointestinal toxicity. And there are um, the expected immune-related adverse events with atezolizumab, um, but none of them seem to be exacerbated particularly. The the correlative sciences were also interesting in that you saw responses in patients that were FGFR3 amplified, I'm sorry, FGFR3 overexpressed, but not mutated or, or without fusions either. So these are FGFR3 wild type, as far as we can tell. And those patients, uh, so there were patients who responded, there were patients who responded to FG, FGFR3 mutation in addition to overexpression. Um, and there were, uh, there were less responses in patients who had PI3 kinase mutation 
patients, um, which you might expect because that's upstream of FGFR3 and in parallel pathways and might be associated with uh, resistance to rotoratinib and FGFR3 inhibitor therapy. Um, and so it provides an additional potential mechanism for patient selection in the future trials. Perhaps patients with PI3 kinase mutations may not be best served by going on this trial, um, and it might be a better op it might be a good a good way to select patients in the future would be PI3 kinase wild type FGFR3 um, overexpressed um, in this um, for future development uh, of this combination. Thank you for tuning in to today's podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. You can follow us on Twitter at VJ Oncology and also visit vjoncology.com to stay in the loop about the latest development in this field. And lastly, please do subscribe to our VJ Oncology podcast available on Spotify, Apple and Podbean. See you next time.